A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information, go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. This is study number 13 in our study of the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we've reached verse 28, getting to the end of the chapter here. Let's look at verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's the third time he's used those horrible words, God gave them up. God is driving home some points of truth here that he's already made very clear in this passage of Scripture, but it's like he's underlining it and making it bold in a little bit larger font by repeating it and saying it in different ways. Notice he did not say, 
since they were unable to perceive that God was real. He didn't say that. He said, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Why did he say it that way? Remember back in verse 18, he told us they're suppressing the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And in verse 19 and 20, we already read this too and studied this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And we've looked at verse 21. He's already told us this. For although they knew God, they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And in verse 23, he told us they chose to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And in verse 25, he said, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So here he says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They chose to ignore him. They didn't want him to be their God. They didn't want to submit to him. God's provided all kinds of evidence, his existence, evidence for his existence, evidence to help us understand his nature, very clear for anyone who wants to see it. We've already talked about this. But if you ever run into anybody who says, you know, I really would like to believe in God like you do. I just can't. I don't have that kind of faith. Some people talk like that. A good question to very graciously and lovingly ask is, listen, are you really serious about that? I mean, would you really like to believe in God? Or are you just saying what you think I want to hear you say, or, or maybe because it seems like the right thing to say? Do you, are you really interested? And if they say, oh, yeah, I'm serious. I'd really like to know if there's, yeah, I'd like to know if there's a way to know. I'd like to have your kind of faith. You can say, well, if you're serious, it turns out that God's given us lots of evidence for you to consider to help you along the way. And if they're willing to look at the evidence, you could send them a link to the Warriors of Christ playlist. I don't know. Have you looked at that playlist? Have you looked at some of those videos? Let me just chase a little rabbit here to show you what I teach in that course, because it's all available for anybody that wants to watch it. It's on YouTube. It's on the Internet. It's open to anybody. You've heard me talk about it from time to time, but let's just look real quickly at the topics. I'm just going to quickly work through these. The first thing I do with these students is talk about the 2 Corinthians 13, 5 passage, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. We spend a lesson talking about that. And then we have four different sessions on the gospel, which is a kind of a detailed presentation of the gospel using the evangelism explosion method of sharing the gospel. And then uh, number six is get started growing in Christ. I'm trying to help them understand the key elements of growing stronger in Jesus. And then lessons seven through 13 are spiritual warfare lessons uh, taken mainly from Ephesians chapter six, but also using some other scriptures that help us know how to fight the kind of war that we're involved in against the enemy. When we get to video number 14, we start talking about the evidence for that God's given us that we can believe his word, the evidence that we know he's real, the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Number 15, we talk about the nature of truth and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. In, in lesson 16, we talk about the evidence for 
the resurrection and creation, we also talk a little bit about uh, Mithras, the pagan god Mithras, and, and the evidence and how it relates to evangelism, sharing the gospel. Number 17 and 18, we talk about the significance of the early Christian martyrs, the fact that so many of them died rather than renounce their faith in Christ. Number 19, we talk about the importance of being ready to be bullied ourselves. That's going to happen in the days we live in especially. Number 20, we talk about more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. 21 and 22, we talk about evidence from the field of archaeology. 23 and 24 and 25, we talk about evidence from fulfilled prophecy. We look at several specific fulfilled prophecies in Scripture. 26 and 27 and 28, we talk about early church history and manuscripts and some of the evidence that God's given us there that help us understand these things are true. And then in number 29, we talk about evidence from molecular biology, evidence for the existence of God from the world of science, uh, 29 and 30. 31 is related to that. We talk about evidence from the second law of thermodynamics. Lessons 32 and 33, we look at the question, who is Jesus? And some of the different kinds of answers we'll hear today. 34 is an introduction to secular worldviews. 35, we look at secular humanism, which is huge in our world today. And 36, we look at the false religion of critical theory, which has begun to be accepted even among some of our Christians because they're not quite aware of what, what they're doing, I guess. Number 37 and 38, we talk about the reasons why it's so important to be able to present the evidence, the biblical basis, why we do Veritas in the first place. 39, we talk about the issue of intolerance, which is a big issue in our day. Lesson 40, we talk about three challenging questions that Christians need to be able to answer quickly. Uh, one is, don't you realize the Bible's full of errors and contradictions? People will say that from time to time. It's common to hear people say, why are you guys so dadgum intolerant? <laughs> and then, don't you realize that all real scientists accept evolution as an established fact? I mean, people try to cause Christians to stumble with questions like that. 41, we look at three more tough questions that Christians need to be able to deal with. One of them is, don't you realize that Christians have been responsible for most of the world's problems? Most of the cruelty in the world came from Christians. <laughs> Witch trials, inquisition, crusades, slavery, those kind of things. And then another one is they'll say, you know what? The Bible is really an evil book. You don't really believe the whole Bible. It advocates the slaughter of babies. And another one is, you know, if God is really that good and he's all good and he's all powerful, why didn't he stop all this evil that's going on in the world? Why didn't he put a stop to it? It's a question that stumps some Christians. Lesson 42, we look at the moral trap that the enemy often sets for young adults that causes them to begin to doubt God and his word. 43, we talk about learning the importance of being able to stand alone. 44, we look at the different sources of authority that people use for making decisions. 45, we look at the evidence from the fine-tuning of the universe. 46, we look at the subject of sex from a biblical perspective. 47 through 52, we look at, uh, we do a study of the last part of the book of Romans, very similar to what we've been doing here. And then the last two, 53 and 54, are a look at Genesis chapter 1 and creation, looking at the matter of beginnings. And I explain why I'm a young earth creationist. So that's kind of an overview of what we do in the Warriors of Christ course, Veritas. So it helps, and I believe it's important in these days especially for every Christian, especially younger Christians, but really for every Christian, to be equipped to share some of this information. It's a process. I know it takes time to learn these things, but it's really, really important in our day. 
especially for the benefit of those out there who might really be interested in listening to the truth, the open-minded skeptics, we call them. Unfortunately, a large number of people who claim that they would like to believe in God, that they would believe in God if they just had enough evidence, they don't really want to see the evidence. And if they happen to run into some of that evidence, they feel compelled to try to come up with some alternative explanations. So they're scrambling around looking for a way to do away with the evidence. They don't want God messing with their lives. That's the problem. Paul wrote it right here. They just don't see fit to acknowledge God. So for the third time, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote down these words, God gave them up. He said it first back in verse 24. In spite of the clear evidence that points men to God, they chose to refuse to honor him as God or give him thanks because they claim to be wise when they were actually fools. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. They enjoyed their sexual sins. So God said, okay, I'm giving you up to it. Have at it. But he makes it very clear in his word, they will not like the consequences. The consequences will be very, very painful. Verse 26, he wrote that because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, he gave them up, gave them up to dishonorable passions. They chose shameful, disgraceful lusts over God. So God gave them up to those dishonorable passions. We talked about that in the previous two studies. And here in verse 28, God tells us they didn't see fit to acknowledge him in spite of all the evidence that points to him. So he did what? He gave them up. He gave them up. This time he says he gave them up to a debased mind, a debased mind. The word that the ESV translates debased is an interesting word. New American Standard translates it depraved. Depraved, that works also. You know how in English we sometimes use the letter A, the first letter of the alphabet, to negate a word? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. If you add the letter A to the beginning of some words, it creates a word that means the opposite of that word, right? For example, Someone who is a theist, T-H-E-I-S-T, a theist, is someone who believes in God. If you add the letter A in front of it, it becomes atheist, and it means someone who does not believe in God, the exact opposite. The word symmetrical means balanced. Asymmetrical means unbalanced. Symptomatic means you have the symptoms of a particular illness or disease. Asymptomatic means you don't have any of those symptoms. Typical means normal or usual. Atypical means unusual, not normal. And the English language gets that feature right out of the Greek language. The Greek language does that a lot. It has the first Greek letter, which is alpha, corresponds to our English letter A, to negate a word. And that's what's going on here in this verse we're looking at. The word translated debased is adokimos. Alpha is pronounced ah, adokimos, which means not dokimos. Whatever dokimos means, it means the opposite, not dokimos. Well, dokimos is an interesting word. It was a word that was used to refer to money that was approved. In other words, it was genuine. It was the real thing. In that day, all money was in the form of coins of precious metal. And sometimes unethical money changers would shave off bits of the coins as a type of stealing. Men of integrity would say, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. We want to make sure people know that they're getting the full coin. We're not shaving anything off. We didn't, we're not cutting notches out of the edges of the coins. These men were said to be dokimos, approved. The money they exchanged was the real thing. 
They were honest. They were ethical. You could depend on them. They were honorable. They were tested. They were esteemed. That's what the word dokimos means. To be tested, to be found to be genuine. And when they put that alpha in front of it, adokimos, which is what Paul used here, it meant not approved, tested and found wanting, not really honest, not the real thing, not really true. These men have chosen to reject truth. They've chosen to deceive themselves about God. Their minds are not given to accepting the truth. So God says, okay, you want a mind like that? You can have it. You've got it. And they can't even see the truth now. Where does it lead? Well, it leads to judgment. It leads to insanity. It leads to deception. It leads people to convincing themselves that there's nothing wrong when there's something very obviously wrong. It leads people to begin to call evil good and to call good evil. God's already told us through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Paul wrote these words, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So here in verse 28, God's extending the truth that he mentioned in verses 21 and 22. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. God's given them up to depraved, debased, unapproved, dishonest, unaccepted minds. And it leads to doing things that ought not to be done. That's what he says right here in verse 28. It leads to excusing sin. It leads to doing things that God calls sin and calling those things good and calling those things acceptable and calling those things normal. Jesus told us that men love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. They were doing bad things. They didn't want the light shining on it. He said, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light, hates the truth, doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed Near the end of his life, Peter wrote these words, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. In the Old Testament, God used Isaiah to warn people about this same problem, problem of rebellious men rejecting God's truth. Look at these words from Isaiah, so powerful. They are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out, about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words, and he wrote them over 700 years before Paul wrote this, these words we're reading from the first chapter of Romans. Rebellious men were still the same in Paul's day as they were in Isaiah's day. And of course, they're the same in our day, 2,000 years after Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 1. Then in verses 29 through 31, he describes some of the kinds of behavior that rejection of God leads to. It's not just sexual sin. He's been focusing on sexual sin. 
But it's not just lesbianism. It's not just homosexuality. Look at this list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil. That just means general wickedness. All kinds of wickedness, all kinds of evil, all kinds of sin. And he mentions some of it. Covetousness, which is greed. Malice, which implies here a desire to hurt other people, take advantage of people. They're full of envy, murder, strife. They love to fight. They love to argue. Deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. Oh, my goodness. When I see that word insolent, I think of so many students I've had through the years who develop a, a self-centeredness and a pride and an arrogance and an insolence, and you try to correct them, and since you're the person in authority, they just roll their eyes, you know. They it's, it's kind of insolence. They think everybody's beneath them. A lot of people like that in the world. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil that come up with creative new ways to sin and rebel against God. Disobedient to parents. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that that one's here? <laughs> Kids don't have to be taught how to be disobedient to their parents. They, they were born with that selfish, rebellious sin nature. But today, kids are actually encouraged by some authorities to be disobedient to their parents, to bypass their parents, to go to agents of the state, to go to so-called experts. Sometimes there's public school employees. But, for example, if they feel a need for an abortion and they don't want their parents to find out, there are people who will encourage that. Don't tell your parents about it. It's awful. Foolish. Faithless, which means not trustworthy. Heartless, which means cruel. Ruthless, which means merciless. The point of these verses is that when men reject God, when they choose not to acknowledge Him, and remember, many, many times this begins because they don't like what God says in his word about sex. They have lust, they have cravings, they have desires, and they don't want anybody getting in the way. They don't want to hear what God says. So when God gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, that leads to sin increasing and multiplying into every imaginable kind of evil and wickedness. Like these things he's listed here, verses 29 through 31. And when a large portion of a whole people group starts rejecting God, and that's happening now in America, the land becomes polluted and overflows with sin and unrighteousness and evil and wickedness and lots of horrific, horrific outcomes. All these things bring the natural consequences of sin. It's a, we call it sometimes the consequential wrath of God. It's piling up. We're reaping what we've sown. It's just beginning. And then look at verse 32. Paul won't let them get by by feigning ignorance here. He won't let them pretend they just didn't know the truth. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we might be tempted to say, wait a minute, Paul, wait a minute. Are you saying people who reject God and embrace various kinds of sins already know they're guilty? Already know they deserve to die? Because if I tell them that, they're just going to laugh at me. They're going to claim they don't even believe you exist, God. They say they're not the least bit worried about the outcome of their behavior. They, say, they think their behavior is perfectly good. And they'll blame their out, bad outcomes on something else or somebody else. But listen, listen, guys, in spite of all their words to the contrary, 
Paul is saying somewhere deep down in their hearts, people really do know better. Just he's already made it clear that people have this deep awareness that there must be a God. God has to exist. Maybe they try to cover it up and they try to pretend he's not there. They may be hidden. You know, they suppress the truth. And in the same way, they realize deep down inside, God is serious about sin. Somewhere deep down, they know they're rebelling against the infinite, holy God. They know they deserve death and destruction deep down inside. Now, they're not going to argue. They're not going to acknowledge that. But down inside, they know. But they're making themselves into fools, pretending it's no big deal. Trying to make themselves believe there's, there are not going to be any consequences. So they can keep doing what their sinful nature urges them to do. They keep following their urges and desires, keep right on sinning, no repentance at all. And Paul says not only do they do them, they approve of others who practice them. Misery loves company, of course. And people who practice evil love to encourage other people in the same evil. They want people in on it with them. They don't want to be out there on the limb by themselves. They want everybody. Oh, come on, come on. There's nothing wrong with this. Come on, come on. <laughs> they want to hear other people approving their behavior so they reciprocate and they approve of other people's sinful behavior. They say, oh, it's just fine. It's not what's good. It's just who you are. They approve of each other's sin, encourage each other's sin. And they will often come to the point where they're thinking thoughts like this or even saying these words. So what if these Christians try to tell me that God says, for example, this homosexual behavior is sinful and leads to bad outcomes or, or living with my girlfriend outside of marriage is sinful and leads to bad outcomes. I got people all around me who give me their approval. They assure me it's just fine. Everybody's doing this. It's good. It's normal. It's just who I am. Everybody I know just about approves of it. There's no way I would deny myself of what I really want. And those maddeningly irritating, bigoted, Bible-believing Christians out there who are trying to tell me about behavior sinful, well, they're just hateful. They're just mean-spirited. They're just homophobes. They need to shut up. And if they won't shut up voluntarily, then the government or somebody needs to shut them up. Freedom of speech should only go so far, they say. The government or maybe the social media moguls, you know, the guys in charge of the social media, they ought to stop people from saying that my behavior is sinful. Freedom of speech must not go that far. I don't want to hear people saying that it's sinful. You've got to stop that. <laughs> and this is where we are today in America. Now, we've reached the end of Romans chapter 1. But listen, guys, it's just the beginning of some of the most profound teaching, deepest theology in the, in the entire Bible. Paul's not stopping here. Remember, Romans doesn't end with chapter 1. In fact, for self-righteous people, this section of scripture we've just been reading can almost be a trap <laughs> because it's easy for some people to say, you tell them, Paul, tell those terrible sinners what their real situation is. Put them in their place. Amen, Paul. But Paul's not done. When he gets to chapter two, there's a powerful warning to any of us who might tend to fall into this trap of self-righteousness. He's, he's going to caution us and warn us, watch out. There's even a hint at it right here in these verses we've been looking at today. Because if you think about that list I read a while ago from verses 29, 30, and 31, uh, you know, he, he's, he's been talking about some pretty horrific sins. But some of the things he sneaks into that list beginning in verse 29 are maybe things that some of us wish he'd left out. I mean, look at this. They, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips. Gossips, really? Gossips? Why did you put that in there, Paul? Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Oh, I mean, we all sometimes brag a little bit, don't we? 
Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I mean, everybody's disobedient to their parents, Paul. <laughs> Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul, I wish you hadn't put some of those things on that list. Why don't you just leave the really bad stuff on the list? Why don't you leave some of the other stuff off of it? I don't understand you, Paul. Jesus warned us about this problem in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus said, why do you see that speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? <laughs> How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's saying, you better be careful. The truth is, we're all in the same boat. He's going to make that very clear all the way through chapter 2 and 3. In fact, let's take just a minute to look briefly. We're not going to get into it today, but just, just so we kind of get a little taste of it before we get to chapter 2, before we stop today. Remember when Paul or any of the Bible writers wrote these things in the Bible, they didn't put chapter and verse divisions there. Those were not in the original manuscripts. So chapter 1 just goes right on into chapter 2. Therefore, he says in the first verse of chapter 2, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So he's saying before you let yourself fall in this trap of self-righteousness, you need to take some time to look at the sin in your own heart and life. We're going to talk about this next time. He said, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's warning his readers, we all need to examine our own hearts. We're all going to find ourselves ultimately in the same boat. We are all guilty. We are all deserving God's righteous judgment and wrath. All of us. We all need God's solution. Of course, that's Jesus. Listen to what Paul's going to say a little bit further on in chapter 3. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. <laughs> And then he said this, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. <laughs> Powerful scripture, isn't it? So Paul is not done, not by any means. And then eventually, Lord willing, he's in charge of all this. We'll get to chapter six and then to chapter eight. And the Holy Spirit uses Paul to write some of the most magnificent truth that God's ever revealed to man right here in these chapters. So there's a lot to look forward to and a lot to be excited about as we look forward to making our way and walking our way and studying our way through this book of Romans. It's an incredible, incredible book.
But now, as tough as it may be, we need to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us so much fabulous truth in your word. Lord, we want to see things from your perspective. We want to think the way you think. We want to understand, Lord, what you want us to understand. We want to have teachable spirits so your Holy Spirit can use your word to enlighten our hearts and minds so we can see things as you teach them and see truth as you teach it in your word. Lord, you know us. We tend to get to thinking that we figure things out. Lord, you know us. We tend to get to be maybe a little too confident in our ability to understand things when we don't maybe understand it as well as we think we might. So, Lord, help us to stay open to you. You be our teacher, please. Get glory as we study your word. Change our lives. Make us more like Jesus. Make us useful instruments in your hands so that as we interact with other people, that they may find your truth uh, through our words and through our lives, that you may get more and more glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.